We're on page 56. We'll start with Allison and then Cody and proceed in alphabetical order from there. At some point this evening, um, uh, Shannon, uh, we can, uh, we'll pause and do a little bit of writing, usually toward the end of the program. We'll usually do some writing about whatever material we've just reviewed. So that'll come up at some point. Allison, you wanna start us off? Yep. Practice is about your life. Practice is about what goes on with you in your life and how you feel as you live that life. What is important to you, what you struggle with will change over time. But practice requires a continual return to exploring. As soon as we think we have figured it out, we've gotten stuck in an illusion. Let's say you are 18 and the question of your boyfriend is paramount. There's something important to learn in that relationship. All relationships with other people start with a struggle to some degree. I want something and they want something else. There's a clash whether it's hidden or not. But say you practice, you figure some things out and the clash is resolved. You may have the feeling that you seek more clearly now. Now you know what life is about. Perhaps a haze of happiness arises, but at some point the very haze of happiness becomes just another boundary. You grow bored with this boyfriend and want a different one, or you sense that the relationship may be holding you back from other interests. The haze of happiness has turned into something you feel shut in by. There's something new to push against. Yeah, I have a question for Ellen because she's worked with Analio. And how would Analio, uh, he probably wouldn't be in the kind of this vein of, of talking about everything is practice, would he? Mm. Trying to think if I've ever heard him say that. It's a real contemporary kind of American Zen thing, I, I suspect. What yeah. do you think? I've never actually heard him say that, that I can recall or read anything he said like that, but, but he, but I, but overall, I think he does see practice as life simply because he's just immersed in it himself. So you don't think it's what? I don't think he would object. Oh, Gail, what do you think about the people you studied with? Um, give me the question again. What's the question again? Well, this idea that everything is practice as opposed to sitting on the cushion or studying the Dharma, you know, this broadening of the practice. Yeah, I, I think that they would say that maybe we start out when we're focusing our awareness on, let's say when you haven't had the realization of the truth yet, that everything seems like practice. But then after that, I think it's just, um, I think Ajashanti would just say it's sort of this natural, um, this inquiry that happens, you know, on a regular basis and this uh, natural movement of- um, where, where, Wherever you are. Yeah, it's it, it's sort of like just being, just just being, you know, and um, yeah, I, I think we use the word practice. I think that's used a lot, um, but really, to me, practice is just um, you know developing more of an awareness of you know what I'm feeling, what's going on, you know, in every particular moment. Anyone else have any ideas on this, Allison? I, I think. Uh, I think. 
pretty consistent with, you know, the chant of each, each moment being just this moment, the teacher, I, I don't. Yeah, I don't, but that comes from Joko Beck. Okay. Yeah, it's her, it, it's her version of the, um, the Four Fourth Noble, noble Truth, right? Mm -hmm. But it is saying what Glenn is saying. It's life as it is. Is oh, that's a good point that going back to the idea of attachment and suffering and those things are not cushion things, but they're life things. Okay, yeah. thank you. That helps. I can, I can tell you that Ka I just read Katagiri today on this and he definitely think pra thinks practice is constant. Now, I'm just wondering where it comes from when it started this idea. I don't think it started with Joko Beck, if Katagiri's saying that. Yeah, right. Okay, who's next? Please, it'd be Cody. Cody, are you with us? Is Cody still here? Let's move on to Ellen, and uh, we'll catch him next time. Oh, that, but the G's come before me. Oh, that's right. Good grief. How about Gail? Wait. A, B, C, D, E, F, G. We've moved it. Did you not get that memo? <laughs> Ellen, Ellen, you're always before me. I think you're up, Ellen. <laughs> I guess I, did, I just forgot the alphabet there for a minute. That's okay. You made me think. I'm like, did I forget the alphabet? <laughs> they change the damn thing every three or 400 years. I know. It. Is that Cody with the window and the sunset? Yeah. Because it, he's muted. Maybe... I, okay. I think he's hear us. I think Cody stepped away. Okay, Ellen, go ahead. Okay, here we go. Let's say you're 18. We didn't read that yet, did we? Yeah, we did. Oh, perhaps you're in your 30s. Okay, perhaps you're in your 30s and you're in the wonderful business of dealing with children, which as far as I'm concerned, will drive anybody crazy. As we deal with all that and learn to have some ease with it, perhaps, again, we have this feeling of, ah, I see what life's about. I know how to do this. And then the next challenge arises. As, a new, as new areas of challenge begin to develop, we often meet each challenge with resistance. This is the nature of life. We thought we had figured things out, and then there's a little bit of resentment that we still have more to learn and still have more pain to feel. I'm having the grandkids a whole lot. Uh, well, just, just the usual a lot this week, but next week I'm having them, oh gosh, more, you know, pretty much almost every day. And uh, but they are challenging. I mean, they're just wonderful and I love being with them, but uh, oh man. I mean, they start having these little squabbles and I don't want to have anything to do with it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> leave me out of this. <laughs> oh, I totally relate, Ellen. How old are they? <laughs> They're uh, seven and nine. Yes. Wow. Almost the same age as mine. Uh, yeah. And I see Nancy nodding her head too. But anyway. It's, it's a fearsome, it's a fearsome practice being uh parenting or grandparenting children. Yes, it is. it <laughs> is. You can't go hide in a cave somewhere and meditate, you know. No, you can't. You can barely even go to the bathroom, so. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
At each stage of our life, our practice is what it is, almost imperceptibly. The things that we're interested in and what we're working with will begin to shift. Different questions arise. What is my life really about? Who is my partner? What is the meaning of my life? Or as we age, what is death? In fact, the question of existence of death can arise at any time in our life. But when we're younger, it tends to get drowned out. Much of our lives is spent going after something we want, a job, a relationship, our kids to be all right, money, health. There's so many things to want. Practice is what you're about. That's of major importance to understand what you've, you're, what you're working with in your life and to begin to have some way of not making a mess of all that. But it's not all <laughs> there is. At some point, the horizon gets wider. As far as I can tell, in a life of sitting, it never ceases to get wider and wider and wider. Just trying to think about that. It never ceases to. She means, I think, it never ceases to stop getting wider and wider and wider. Does, is that is that written correctly? Yeah, it does. It keeps getting wider. It never ceases to get wider. It never stops getting wider and wider. Okay. We're still occupied with the personal problems. Life is always about people, relationships, and whatever work we're doing. But if we truly begin to enjoy a regular practice, there are periods of resolution and a sense of something settling down within us that wasn't settled before. The base of life becomes stronger. There is still struggle, but our sense of solidity gets stronger and stronger the longer we practice. We get much more comfortable with this idea of just living. A substitute life. Our practice is always to uncover what's blocking our awareness of the wonder that is life. The main way we obscure the wonder is by having a substitute life. This is because the only possible response to a core belief, if it's not recognized, is to lie to yourself and everyone else. You may not call it that, but that's what it uh, but that's what it amounts to. To live through such a lie is not a genuine life, but a substitute one. It goes through the motions and gives the appearance of, your, of our life but it's born out of the illusory world of the core belief. I'm always amazed at the number of people who underneath a successful or charming surface feel that they're worthless. So many people feel like their only use in life really would be if somebody put them at the end of a mop and cleaned up things with them. They think that that would be quite appropriate. And, and is it Shannon now? Shannon, would you like to read?
All right, let's uh, head back to Allison. All right. Let's not skip the G's this time. Let's remember the alphabet. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> That's not true of everybody. Some people are much more prickly than that. They don't feel like mop heads at all. They feel like they need to use other people as mop heads as they run around and clean up their life. But these styles are not a matter of good or bad. They are just the strategies we use to operate the substitute life we've developed to try to feel safe in the world. Cody back yet? Doesn't, doesn't look like it. Okay, so it's me? Yep. A substitute life is often a life built to achieve a good looking result on the outside, but underneath it feels hollow and empty, unsatisfying. Sometimes I see it particularly in young women. They're charming, they're put together, they look right, they work hard, they have a partner whom they seem to care about, they do right with their kids and, they just, and they're just stepping along in their life. It looks good and it may be good, but I've learned to be suspicious. People are not usually the way they look. Underneath all the togetherness, there is often loneliness and a blahness in people. They are living the substitute life that they learn to build. From morning to night, they build it and build it and build it by every action, every conversation, and every little piece of whatever they're doing. On the other extreme is someone like Ted Kaczynski, the math professor who became known as the Unabomber after killing three people with homemade bombs he sent through the mail. For most of his life, he was bright, engaged, getting his work done. But his false life, his substitute life, was already in place. He became more and more withdrawn and lonely, spinning a world in his head which had no relationship to reality, leaving him where he finally ended up. It's not that different than a person who's building a successful substitute life as a tech executive. They look different, and of course, the results are more lethal in the case of someone as extreme as Kaczynski. I'm not belittling that. The mechanisms are, however, the same. Whether the result of our substitute life is extreme or more mundane, it is still taking us away from ourselves. It can look as simple as the person who is overactive, overbusy, working hard, doing 10 things at once. And it's fine to be busy. But in this case, the substitute life is building a cover of being busy, effective of a busy, effective person. So we don't have to face our real life. The real life is the one we don't ever want to face. We don't want to face that place where we're stuck, hurt, and miserable. And we certainly don't want to just rest in it. Instead, we cruise right along. We all have our little drugs, our ways of staying in our substitute lives. Because the desire for something that feels good is so strong in us, the discipline of practice can become if we're not aware, a substitute for life itself. I'm gonna, I'm gonna try that one again. Because the desire for something that feels good is so strong in us, the discipline of practice can become, if we're not aware, a substitute for life itself. Well, that's a real tough one, isn't it? That you're just substituting one life for, for another. I mean, it would be equivalent to someone with an addiction problem substituting one addiction for another or one coping mechanism for another and um, yeah. that's what um, 
I suppose I could see myself doing it, you know, trying to disappear into a meditative, you know, um, spiritually centered life as a way to um, escape from uh, difficult relationships and, um, you know, feelings about myself as not being good enough. That's where she's going with all of this. It's like covering up these core beliefs we have. Yeah, there was a plenty of time in my life where that was all I, what I really wished for, that I could just go live in a, an ashram or monastery or something, and that's all I would have to do. But thank God, it was not possible. <laughs> that would have been a terrible thing to do. Yeah, yeah, it's hard to be here in a, a human body mind. It is. It's 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 hard. And I, in fact, somebody in one of my other meetings was saying that when he first got into spiritual life, he was just hoping that he would advance and have such expansion of consciousness that basically he'd disappear in a puff of smoke and never, never have to come back here. <laughs> which, sounds, which sounds funny, but actually we're all hoping for something similar. And, and then when you realize that it's not about that at all, it's actually about bringing that expanded loving open heart into this messy life that's what we're about here right i i really uh resonate with that gail i i feel like a lot of my friends who are in in mindfulness or they're listening to apps and you know meditating online and this kind of thing um could slip into that very thing and i'm i can see some of them doing it that and, and and to me it's about the power of sangha that when we come together and do this, um, you know, we start helping each other turn inward. Because I think a lot of people come to get involved in Zen because they want to bliss out or they want to escape their present life. Um, and, and so I think the power of the community can really turn people in, help them turn in inward, help them begin, you know, a deeper practice. And I kind of worry about this huge mindfulness online community. And I, I wonder if, if they're having that experience or if they're just substituting one life for another. I mean, I think I, I, coming from other mindfulness traditions, that is something I have, at least that's what it, like, it looks like to me um, among certain, certain people. And like, um, there's often a lot of talk about like spiritual bypassing and, you know, like, oh, good vibes only. We're not gonna talk about that because we can't talk about the bad stuff. The bad stuff isn't spiritual. Um, which has <laughs> that for whatever degree of skepticism I already had that witnessing that really upped the ante. Um, and also like, that's something that I recognize, like, because I can, you know, when I find something that I really believe in, I'll go all in on it. Like, um, and so I'm like, yeah, the, a lot of that could have been me as well. Um, um, if not for, and sometimes it is sangha, right? But if all of your sangha is all like, yeah, let's all bliss out, that's not right. gonna be useful. Um, but I think for me, it's very helpful that like, my partner has no interest in any spiritual practice, um, but that actually is good. Cause like, it's a, it's a he's a reality check. <laughs> that's, a very, that's a very good point, Allison, because uh, I also have a partner who has no interest, but um, I, think that life itself is going to bring you down into 
this experience. Uh, there's no escaping um, life as it is. That's why that last noble truth, that's the key. You know, it's not transcending, it's, it's moving through life, you know, that is actually the um, evolution, if you want to call it that, that we're being asked to, uh, to, do, to do. I, I was listening to a talk with a woman who um, from an early uh, age actually had very transcendental experiential um, things happening. And um, then she had a baby who was extremely, <laughs> extremely difficult. Uh, a baby who never slept, a baby who was, uh, had health issues, one that brought her to her knees. And basically um, she was not allowed to meditate. She wasn't allowed to go off and you know anywhere she had to be with this difficult, difficult relationship. And it was when she surrendered to it that she had this huge heart opening and just, just this big expansion happened. So it's like life itself, this that we are, we're not separate from it, is gonna bring us to what needs to happen. Because that's the way it's moving, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Nice. Whose turn is it? I think it's yours, Kim. Yes. Are we on Zen practice? Yes. Zen practice can be used to avoid dealing with people or messiness or anything we don't want to feel. And then thereby turn into a substitute life. Of course, I, <laughs> I think sitting is the simplest and most direct approach to experiencing life. But the purpose is experiencing life, not sitting. Mm. Some of the finest people in the world have never heard of sitting. This is so difficult, isn't it? You, you, it's not difficult. Glenn's saying, no, it's not difficult. I think it might be hard, but I don't, I, why, no, why, why do you think it's difficult? Because uh, just doing kind of the appropriate or right thing isn't enough. You have to be doing it kind of with the right view as well. It is. You know, someone yeah. could be watching you and think like you're on this great track when in truth, you're just making up this a different world or or you know like doing this for show just like the young woman he's she's talking about <coughs> that's why it's difficult it did is. you see shannon wrote that he didn't have a microphone but hopefully he'll be able to get one in the future oh okay but that's why he's not reading okay or is it, uh, I'm not sure, is Shannon a she or a I he? Say, I thought Shannon was a she, but I don't know. Shannon, are you a he or a she or a what? Or are they? Are you still with us? We're what? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Nancy, I think. Nancy Dallas. Oh, okay. he, he. He. Yeah, I, I saw a picture of Shannon when he joined with Meetup. That's why I, I uh, knew. Gotcha. 
Okay. Whether it's a religion, business, relationship, or whatever it is, if we use it as an excuse not to feel, we're not living our real lives. We go on with our substitute life, and it never feels right. It's not satisfying. It's not satisfying. To some degree, we undo this. Every time we feel our substitute life, we cultivate unease, depression, and illness. And yet, at any point in any day, we have the opportunity to see and experience our true life. When we sit, we begin to know things about ourselves we never knew before. We can see how we've built up our substitute life. We begin to sense we're always thinking about certain things and pushing for certain things. We feel the body tense up. When we sit every day, that information is being given to us. Every day, if we sit, we see exactly where we're at. That's why sitting is so precious. It's the only one time in the day you can really be yourself and see what goes on. And of course, the reservation there is that our substitute life doesn't want us to see what goes on. Oh, I see. It's frightening to see what goes on, so we tend to withdraw or not sit. Part of a sitting career is to begin to see how you avoid your practice. That goes on all of our life. We like our substitute life, or we think we do. It's only when we stay with it long enough that we sense the emptiness and the pain underneath. The point of living. People sometimes tell me my life doesn't matter or I don't see any point in living. To me, these beliefs point to an important part of practice to be able to connect with all of life and be there for yourself and for others. That's a major thing to do. Your life matters totally. It matters aside from a specific accomplishments in the world, which are fine. But the most important thing in practice is the development of a more genuine person with all the complexity that each one of us is. A stable, powerful base emerges because you're connecting with life itself. Uh, I think Cody left. Yeah, he messaged saying he thinks his rooster is dying. Oh, his rooster. Shoot. Um, okay, where do I start? I'm sorry, I lost my place. Practice, Practice. is a long, twisting go road. Page okay, got it. Got it. Uh, Practice is a long, twisting road. There are times it seems wonderful. There are times when it's absolutely boring, difficult, at least for, at least for the person doing it. From their point of view, it's unrewarding. Sometimes you just don't see the point. If you wait six months or a year, you'll see it. But we have to have that kind of overview. Practice isn't a weekend seminar. You can have wonderful insights. Ah, oh, wonderful, wonderful, I get it now. Six months later, you may not get it at all. It may be a mess, but that's the wonder of practice life, the ins and outs, the resistance and confusion. As long as we think the aim of practice is comfort, pleasure, and being calm, we miss it. In the long run, people who practice 
are, cal are calmer, but that's not the point of practice. The point is to begin to contact yourself as you are, angry, resistant, depressed, phony, whatever you are. A lot of us want to practice just until we hit the hard stuff and then we go around it. You're not practicing in a way that will fully benefit your life until you pause once in a while at that point of difficulty and just stay with it. Is there anybody here who wants to do that? I don't think so, I don't. But whatever stage of life you're in, as you learn to go right into and through the hard spots, that's what makes your life satisfying. So I'm trying to have us look at the fact that a sitting life is immensely rich. It's a struggle that taken as a whole, people who stay with it have lives that begin to make sense to them. That can include their trials or difficulties and their illnesses, but their lives have a certain base that is valuable to them and valuable to others. Uh, 740, y'all want to go to, y'all want to do some writing or y'all want to pause here or keep going reading? Let's see how many. I could go either way. How about others? I think we should continue. Let's, okay. let's read a bit more. I'm with you. Okay. I, yeah, if I, it's, it's a I, shorter, it, it's not a long chapter coming up. Yeah, and it's a, uh, I, I had a short paragraph, so I'll go ahead and read again. Cutting off the escape. So much of our practice is noticing, noticing, noticing what we do. You won't notice at all because some of it we don't yet have any idea about, but we'll notice something. We notice the string of thoughts that continually arise when we sit. Kim? No, I read after Gail. No, you read after Glenn. Okay. Thanks, Allison. <laughs> A, B, C, D. <laughs> Not all our thoughts spring from our core belief or its anxious attendant, our basic strategy. Sometimes we are just noticing a car going by and thinking about that. But usually, even if we are just thinking about what to have for dinner, our thoughts are flowing out of our core belief. When we've labeled or and noticed Certain thoughts repeating hundreds of times, those strings of thoughts that were designed to fix or change the fact of our experience are no longer so interesting. Something begins to dawn on us. We start to know ourselves as we never have before. But there's no warranty this will happen, unfortunately. We always want to escape from ourselves and get on with seeing if our basic strategy can figure out life, can fig figure our life out. The principle, the discipline of sitting still, then diligently cut off that is it. When you cut it off, you left with a direct experience of life. It's a very different thing from not having that direct experience. A life that has a little bit that every day is very different than a life that has none. 
Justine. Wait, wait. Uh, Shannon made a comment. The difficult moments in practice gives me the most satisfaction and inner growth. And that, that connects uh, with something someone said this morning um, after Zazen, well, that they had the best experience of their life, the only time in four years that they really meditated on and on and on. And, and then I, I have been thinking today about Buddha's night of meditation when he was enlightened. And was that really a great meditation time? Because, you know, Mara visited multiple times. He had all these thoughts. So, you know, it was kind of a tough night, wasn't it? Yeah. And um, well, I had said this morning that I, I really like hard, remember, you know, hard meditation sessions. But and I don't know if that's true, but I just said it. But but anyway, it was fun to think about. And then I found some 39 page book on Buddhist night of meditation. You know, the, the first watch and the second watch and the third watch. It was a pretty aggravating night, I would think. I think okay. you learn. I think you learn with practice. I'm I'm with Shannon um, that um, you know at the beginning you're kind of disturbed, you know, to think that you're having all these difficult moments and thoughts when you're meditating when you thought it was going to bring you peace. But once you've actually gone through it, I mean, actually sat with it and then gone through and had that energy move off and maybe had insight or peace underneath it, you begin to trust the process. And, you know, for me, I totally trust the process. And when I go through something difficult now, I'm kind of with Shannon, it's sort of like, okay, let's see, let's see what wants to happen here. You know, I, I'm not afraid of it like I used to be, you know, so uh, I think uh, that's what practice does. If you stick with it, you learn to trust it. Okay, I think we're resting in sensation. Who's reading? Uh, we need, what we need to do, but what we really don't want to do is return to the pain of our core belief. I'm using the word pain because we know that way, because we know it that way, but it's really just a physical sensation. It's not going to kill you. Suppose you feel you're never able to succeed. You're a failure. What does it feel like? We don't want to rest in that feeling. The core belief says you're wasting your time. You need to be out fixing the world, taking care of me. It's always offering this escape from our feelings. To begin to rest in sensation is at the heart of practice. It's good to know what our core belief is to know it's a mistaken belief and to be able to see what strategies we use in service of that belief. But all that knowing doesn't solve a thing. What solves it is when we return and rest right here where we don't want to rest. We try to do this, but instead we wallow in it or obsess about it. Wallowing and obsessing can be very dramatic. And of course the drama is always interesting, but we should be suspicious of it. Wallowing or obsessing is still thinking about our experience, not residing in it. Sitting isn't a virtue. We can develop the muscle of being able to reside in the pain of the core belief. Sitting builds muscles that allows us to stay and rest for a moment in our own experience. That's why it's important, not because sitting is some virtue in itself, Sitting isn't a virtue. 
It's just a chance to play with this problem of the self. You have to be careful that sitting itself doesn't become the strategy. Sitting can be the biggest escape of all. It can become a real hang-up if you're attached to your identity as a sitter or a meditator. A good teacher helps. Someone using sitting as a strategy is not a hard thing to spot from the outside, but we tend not to see our own strategies. I knew one young father who told me proudly how he was sitting for an hour every morning and an hour every evening. I asked him who was taking care of his kids during that time, and he looked surprised and said, it's my partner's job to take care of the kids. That's not noble. It's just another strategy. Who's next? Glenn. I've been, sorry, I was reading away. <laughs> you have an idea of yourself as someone who has a Zen practice or someone who sits. You have to be very careful not to respond reflexively to everything that happens with, eh, it doesn't bother me. The fact is, it probably does bother you. The first step is to be honest with yourself. You are whatever you are, whether it's irritated, angry, scared, or defensive. That what, that's what, what needs to be worked with. Otherwise, you miss your chance to, to feel in yourself what really is. Zen students are particularly liable to have these kinds of ideals. It doesn't bother me. Everything is fine. I'm above that kind of issue, but we're not. Tim, you're up. I once had a student who kept challenging me about little things. I was fine with that. I told my daughter, I see what the student is doing. It's obvious why he's doing that, and it doesn't bother me. And she said, Mom, how do you really feel? I said, oh, I'm mad. <laughs> the way we want things. Our nature as human beings is to want everything just the way we want it. But it's never the way I want it. Know what I mean? There is always something going wrong in relation to my plans for the day. When something isn't the way you want it. There's that little glitch in yourself. You can feel it. The body tightens. One advantage of sitting is you to get to know that tightening. People who sit begin to sense when the body is just present versus when you have a thought that really throws you. You begin to sense the body tensing and you get interested in that. When someone does something that we don't like, it's fine to not like it, but we have a chance to practice with our emotional reaction, our anger or sense of outrage or hurt. There's a difference between stopping someone's inappropriate action, which can be a good and necessary thing to do, and acting out of our core belief. If you feel you're fundamentally imperfect and that feels unbearable, an excellent way to cover it up is to try and control or fix someone else. You feel other people should be different, more perfect than they are. If you're usually in a position of authority in your family or at work, you probably have a greater illusion of control. I have that because I direct this Zen center and that illusion is not good for me. I need to have a part of my life where I'm not in charge. Learning a new skill can be helpful in this regard. 
I'm learning one right now. It's really wonderful for me because I can't do anything right. It's very humbling. If I remember one thing, I forget something else. That's when I remember that I've forgotten the next thing. I also make sure I always have friends who have nothing to do with practice. That's a trip in itself. Some of them have no idea what I do. It's hard on the ego. Your life is right here. As we sit with this thing we don't want to sit with, we have a chance to cut off the escape, learn to reside in our experiencing and let it be. If we can stop trying to fix it or change it or be mad at it, it begins to transform us. We don't have to transform it, it transforms us. We become more spacious. It's as though you have more room around you. Now, this is where you enter a growth that is hard to describe. You will sense in yourself as you're practicing that your life grows increasingly free of judgment. It's increasingly free of your self-centered hassle. We can't catch it all. We're all busy people doing lots of things, but try to work with one thing a day when you're sitting. It doesn't need to be your whole sitting period and it doesn't have to be while you're sitting at all. Just try honestly to honestly experience one thing a day that's upsetting you. You don't have to tell anyone. You can feel whatever you feel no matter how ugly, petty, or scary. We have to work with the truth or we miss an opportunity. Do you want to keep going? I think this is probably a good place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. All right. Does anyone want to suggest a writing prompt? I don't know how to phrase it, but it seems this idea. Um, oh, I don't know. I, I have my own kind of like, I mean, she's really brought up something pretty powerful. I think that just, yeah, just because an outsider would look at us and, and see that we're doing the right thing or something beneficial. Are we really, or is it just another like, parallel worthless action. Well, what struck me um, was, and what I could really relate to was uh, when you sit, you see what you do, you see what you really do, what you're really doing. And, uh, and I remember in the, especially, I mean, I think it still, it still goes on. But in the early days, my life was pretty much a, a overall lie. <laughs> you know, there wasn't too much truth in it. And, uh, and I just couldn't live. I, once I started meditating, everything fell apart. I couldn't do it anymore. I mean, it was pretty drastic in my case. But uh, I think that happens a lot. When you sit and you really see what you do, then you start what you hear, the hear this thing you've created that works seems to work in all, you know, imperfect, but it works. And then all of a sudden it doesn't work anymore when you really look at it. Did has anybody else had that experience? I don't know. It sounds like looking in a mirror. You know, you you really looking in a mirror and then really looking in a mirror. Yeah. 
not just a glance not just a glance and then you can't do and then you or can't. imagine being in a, in a house of mirrors and everything wherever you look there's a mirror and the, but it's distorted in a house of mirrors it's <laughs> oh distorted. well maybe maybe that's part of this whole image that yeah maybe at first it's, it is distorted and then gradually yeah. The mirrors here gets a little clearer or less foggy or something. Yeah. So uh, Shannon wrote to you, Gail. Yes, Gail, I trust the process. <laughs> that heart. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we're going to write for 10 minutes and then we're going to discuss. What are we going to write about? Does anyone want to suggest a prompt? Oh, I kind of like just what we read. Um, honestly, experiencing one thing a day that upsets you. Oh, that's a good idea. That happened today. I can think of one for me. Oh, <laughs> surely I could. Surely I can think of something. Yeah. Oh, right. We're supposed to write about one thing that upset us. Well, okay. how about how about we write? How about something that that you've been uh, that's come up for you in meditation recently that you probably wouldn't have noticed had you not found that quiet space and and sat on the cushion? Would that would that be a good way? It could be the last ten years, a year, last week. Is that okay? Yeah, give it a go. What was that? What was so? What were some of those things that popped up? You couldn't stuff them back in the box. All right. Okay. See you all at 810. You know, Gail and Ellen, do y'all remember, or all of you who've known Peg a long time, her, when she talked about she said something about Joko back saying people come to Zen with ashes in their mouth, like when they're just absolutely at the end of their rope or something like that. Do you remember? Have you ever heard her say that? Do you remember that quote? Okay. All right. I only heard her say it once. Ellen, you're muted. Not the ashes in her mouth, but uh, the uh, but that people come to Zen when they're at the end of their rope, I've heard her say. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Shannon wrote a message. What I've been working with in my meditation has been an inner peace, has been an inner peace in thought and body. What meditation I have after meditation, I have a peace that makes my life worthy of joy. That's really cool. That's yeah, beautiful, too. I, I think Joko Beck really has a um, I did, I, you know, I sat down and I, I, I went, I, I did actually for once do the writing and <laughs> made a long list of things that I did, you know, was, was forced to take a, a look at in meditation that probably would not have without it. But this has been a, just, this has been a joyful practice for me. I mean, it's yes, things come up and they can be bad, horrible, <laughs> But I mean, the sense of spaciousness and joy and releasing judgment and just letting some of those narratives go is 
far outweighed for me the uh you know the, the hard stuff or as kim said earlier the difficult stuff um that's all i just want i mean so so maybe maybe well i appreciate what joko is saying yeah but there's a lot of really highly positive um sensation and peace that has come out of the practice, my practice too i um what i was um really surprised to find in my practice um was that oh how can i say this in meeting the actual emotional bodily sensations uh, let's say of anger. I wrote about anger a lot. I didn't know I had so much anger inside. Oh, me too. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. so when I actually was a, that actually was able to surface and I was able to actually drop the narrative and feel the sensations of that energy. And this has happened more than once. Um, when it dissipates, you'll find some, for some, there, there've been some experience I've had where I found layers. It'll go down sort of like a grief maybe underneath, you know, and then, uh, but always, every single time when I stick with it and don't hide from it, at the bottom of it, at the base of it is peace. This peace, this, this, you know, and um, that blew my mind when I first um, had that experience. You know, starting out with irritation, anger, rage, grief, and then all of a sudden underneath it, this immense peace. Well, that's what Shannon is writing about that, too. Yeah. But maybe there's two kinds of peace. One's like an escape peace, mm -hmm. and the other is the peace that you're talking about, Gail. Right. This was not an escape. <laughs> it was what was there all along, is that what I guess I was feeling. It felt like the you know, and it was kind of surprising that it was there. Like you, <laughs> you know? I'm sure there's drugs that will create peace for people. Yeah, but you know, uh, for me, for me, it was just the surprise of that um, that when you actually allow some of these um, what you consider negative emotions, you know, to be fully met and experienced that there's like um how can you say it a tra they transmute there's something on the opposite side of it ajishani talks about that um and i I've, I've experienced it like i got really angry uh at one of my uh, grown kids uh right before i did meditation some years ago um he, he you know a relationship was difficult he blamed me for so many things and he was in that mode right before I went into Appamata to sit. <laughs> and he sent me this really long thing about how, you know, I'm the cause of everything. And, and then I had to go sit, <laughs> you know, for 30 minutes, you know, stewing on that. And all of a sudden this rage, this rage came up and it was sort of, it felt like, it's so unfair, you know, and, and it was like I was in this thing, but then the story stopped and I just allowed the uh, energy to happen. And then right on the flip side of it, everything kind of dissipated. And I got a very, very clear thought about um, what needed to happen, what, what the next step was. 
and it was very calm, very quiet, very clear, almost like a knife. And um, so it was clarity. It was clarity on the other side of anger. I don't understand how that happened. So yeah, that was what I kind of wrote about tonight because that was kind of shocking to me. So when I left meditation that day, I did what this voice or whatever it was, this, this feeling told me to do. And it opened up our, our um, dialogue, completely opened it up. And um, you know, we were able to kind of work through what that particular moment was happening between us but wow what who knew that you can transmute these negative emotions and wisdom or peace or heart opening can be on the other side of it who knew i didn't know until i started meditating i just didn't know it so sorry i sound too excited about that but it was it just no. always blew my mind. <laughs> Not too excited. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, if you've ever had that happen, it's sort of like it's, it's surprising. Well, it's also moving from, I was just writing something about this, moving from a binary world to a non-binary world. You know, like, like we grow up thinking that there's good things and bad things and things that make us happy and things that make us sad and hard things and easy things and and we try to find just the, the easy, fun, good things. Can I read mine? Please. Here I thought I, oh, I never follow assignments. You guys know that. So I did something a little different. Here I thought I was doing the right thing, being a man of the collar sort of thing. I met a guy years ago who retired from teaching and became a beachcomber. And I took one look at him and thought, I don't want to do that. But then I became a man of the collar. And now I wonder if it is exactly the same thing. Maybe I'd be better off as a beachcomber. I'd get more sun, that's for sure. And then a drawing. Oh, I like that one. So, I like that flat little man on the beach. He's on a blanket. I know he is. <laughs> I can still see him and his wife and, you know, sand on the floor because they had just come in from the beach. I, I don't know. He might be a cousin or something. I think a cousin, my brother-in-law, from his <laughs> side of the family. And whenever I, the word retirement and this vision of him are just like this. And I was so clear. I was not going to do that. I was not going to do that. And the more I think about it, maybe I should have. <laughs> and, you know, he would just like go down to the beach every day. Same thing, huh? <laughs> Is that any different, laying on a blanket or sitting on a Zabaton? It depends on how you do it, I guess. <laughs> Actually, it's a really nice, if you're meditating, I've done this before. It's a really nice visual to picture yourself lying on a beach. Oh, maybe I'll do that. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful way to kind of uh, completely yeah. relax. I wonder if he's still alive. I wonder if he is. This is about, uh, you know, the 1990s, maybe. 1990s, is that it? Yeah. Uh, someone else, someone else. 
Oh, we have another uh, writing from Shannon. Oh, good. This piece emanates in all you do, creating a harmony in all your interactions. This is how I know for myself that this is my truth. This piece emanates in all you do, creating. Oh, peace is P-E-A-C-E. This peace emanates in all you do, creating a harmony in all your interactions. This is how I know for myself that this is the truth. That seems like a good barometer. Yeah, it's it's actually, um, I believe it's what's being referred to when Buddhism talks about true nature um, in many ways. It's, it's immovable, it's vast, it's, you know, I remember when I told Peg this story about all these emotions and then at the bottom of it was peace. I wanted to know why I was feeling all these emotions. And she said, pay attention to the peace. She mm -hmm. goes, turn your attention to that. <laughs> I was going, why am I feeling, you know, the grief was underneath this and underneath it. And she goes, yes, but what about the ground? What about the ground you experienced? Pay attention to that. Yeah. That's a lotus coming from muddy water, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Nancy, how's your rash today? Oh, thanks for asking. Um, it's starting, um, I mean, it's better than this morning, but it, um, I start feeling itchy. No, that's tough. I think it's a good sense, right? It's kind of parallel to everything we're talking about, isn't it? And now you have to look at it and not scratch it. Right. <laughs> yeah, I have to live with it and accept what it is and just slowly, slowly, it will like, finally it will heal, but it will not be like immediate yeah, the, as I want. The, the immediate, re I've been getting mosquito bites and the immediate thing doesn't help at all, does it? But, yeah. but forget, ignoring them seems to work. Did you get into poison ivy, Nancy? Did you, Sorry, what? Did you get into poison ivy, the plant? I really don't know. I, okay. I don't think so. I did not go out um, to the field anywhere that I can get these. Yeah, the doctor asked me the same thing. But then, yeah, he cannot tell, like, how I get it, and he did not really know what it is either. He just gives some <laughs> some medicine to see if it if it helps, and if not, oh. then I have to see someone um, like the specialized as um, dermatologist. But so Shannon is making a recommendation. He he says, please consider ta ta tamanu oil for this problem, and the way you spell it, you could look it up. T-A-M-A-N-U. T-A-M-A-N-U. Oh, okay. Tamanu. Okay, thank you. Tama I don't know how to say it. Tamanu? Tamanu? 
Yeah, I need my idea. I will look it up. Thank you, Sean. Who else? Who else? Nancy, we haven't heard from you. You're kind of like a beachcomber there with the grass <laughs> and the sun. No, you've got my number. <laughs> I think I, I really like, Gail, the way you talk about answer. I feel like I, uh, anger. I feel like I answered this last week when um, I talked about realizing that I had been very angry before I started meditating and it went away, uh, but I didn't know that it went away immediately. That's the, the miracle part to me until I thought about a particular subject and realized, oh my gosh, I'm not angry about this anymore. And um, I was, I'm listening to all of you and wondering how you know what to address when you meditate, because I didn't at all, and yet still it got solved. Yes, Glenn. Well, um, I can't speak for anybody but myself, but I, I was always told that if you if you make a quiet space and, and, and the time, things will bubble up that need to bubble up. You know, it'll it'll come to you. It'll rise. It's like a whale coming up for a breath. You'll, if we're quiet and we're attentive, it, it'll declare itself. There might be another side to it. Like there's a practice of uh, channeling your dreams, the dreams you're going to have. And so, you know, I think you can also give yourself a, a topic or give your, you know, you could put something in there. I don't, not disagree with you, Glenn, but I think there's that other possibility. Like, you know, I'm having a lot of trouble with my sister or something and, you know, just really go there. Even if you never articulate it consciously, you could still just kind of sit with that feeling you're having. Gail wants to say something. No, I was just going to say, um you know, my experience was uh, much like Glenn is saying that um, the longer I would sit, and sometimes this is what retreat would do. I don't know if you've done retreats, Nancy, but um, usually the first day or two, a silent retreat, um, my mind would just be going off in different places. It couldn't seem to focus anywhere. Usually by about day three or four, and I would do like a seven-day silent retreat, that's kind of when whatever was deepest in me that needed to be looked at would start to rise. <laughs> so sometimes it's just, uh, you know, um, having a prolonged sitting sometimes will show you what needs to happen. Uh, you know, but I never worry about it. I don't worry about it. Whatever wants to be met is going to be going to show itself. <clears throat> uh, I, don't, I don't have to look for it. Yeah. And I think that's what the pandemic has been for me, a retreat, <laughs> a year and a half of retreat. But thank you. And Allison. I wrote about, well, I didn't even get all the way through. Um, I needed more than 10 minutes, I think. 
but um, so this wasn't actually in meditation, but it was, this is the practice of life, I guess you could call it. But um, uh, if you haven't guessed, I am a bit of a fiery person. Um, and Saturday, I planned to do some things, two of which were kind of important and miscommunication, everything went sideways and I got pretty upset. Um, and sometimes when I get upset, I like to pick fights, not my greatest characteristic. Um, but, you know, my partner knew when I was tense and I was actually able, I think for like the first time in my whole life, I was just able to have the presence of mind to just say, I really just want to pick a fight with you because I feel bad. Um, and then once I said it, it actually just like floated away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, uh, yeah, it was a, that was a pretty interesting moment. And we know people like that. Like my wife is like that. She's very hard to pick a fight with. <laughs> But uh, uh, Nancy in Dallas, um, we heard about your rash, but not about your, what you wrote about. Did you want to talk about that? Oh, <laughs> it's kind of funny when I realize it. Um, uh, it's just, I think during the seat, um, the sitting, I kept like, uh, I realized that I, I don't like to hanging out with people much as I, I can talk and like, okay, so it's kind of like, I, I feel something inside of me kind of like nervous or like un, uneasy when I have to hang out with people. But I force myself to do it because I know it's, what I have to do, otherwise I will be isolated. <laughs> but yeah, so that's what I realized. But um, I need to like sit more to see deeper why I have that. But most of the time it's like, when I go to the office, uh, I mean, when I went to the office before, I always try to pick the time that really early in the morning, like 7 a.m. when no one's there. And then I finished the work and then I left before everyone comes in. So people always ask me, why are you here so early? And I, I couldn't really say that because I don't want to see anyone. <laughs> Maybe I just, no, I did not say that. Maybe I just, oh, I'm a morning person. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> True. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's what I can share. I, yeah, I plan to talk to Pat about this to see if there's anything mm, I can learn more about myself. Yeah. Well, I think just the fact that you've realized it, so you've gone from a strategy to not seeing people to, to kind of forcing yourself to see people. That sounds like progress. Glenn, hmm? anything more? No, just I, it was a fantastic evening, and thank you so much for sharing your practice. Yeah, I'm great. so glad we're doing the writing. Yeah, it's nice.
Shannon, wow. I, hope, I hope you'll join us. Uh, grab a grab a little camera and a phone, a phone if you have a phone one. Even yeah.